Right, I'm here with my colleagues, Dr. Peter Lee and Dr. Grace Utanto. And we've been chatting this morning, and we're going to continue this conversation. We've been chatting about, uh, I guess, a decidedly hermeneutical topic, and it's the idea of um, a text. (laughs) How's that for a general topic? The idea of a text, and particularly how a text creates a representation of the world or what you know is sometimes referred to as a simulacrum, okay? Um, in other words, the world, I mean, we're, we're used to this if, if you're playing video games, if you're watching a movie, or honestly, if you're reading the Bible, that uh, every artist, every narrator creates a representation of the world that, uh, that works according to certain rules, has certain expectations, and one of our jobs as interpreters of texts, and this would be both the biblical text and other texts, right, is to listen to the voice of the narrator. And sometimes that's an implied narrator uh, who's implied by the author, may not necessarily be the author. But, uh, you know, to pay attention to the voice of the narrator, to what they're choosing to say and what not to say, how they're framing pictures or not framing pictures, how they're, um, you know, what they're leaving out versus what they're putting in. And that this, this awareness opens up a whole level of interpretation that you miss if you're merely looking through the narrative at the events that are being described. As a matter of fact, merely looking through the narrative uh, to the events being described is actually somewhat of a, it's, it's not a bad thing to do, but it's very limited. And you might even say naive way of thinking about a text. And so what we've been talking about this morning, and we're going to try it out and see if it continue, if, if this works for a podcast, we've been talking about this morning about how this is the case, um, not just with the Bible, but this is with every movie that you watch, every time you listen to a podcast like this one even, or Honestly, even if you're listening to, uh, you know, your granddad, who's just really good at spinning a yarn, um, he's not giving you some kind of uh, unmarked representation of the events that he's describing, but it's very marked. It's very uh, formed and designed to communicate a certain idea. And we're always doing this all the time. And in many ways, you know, there's one of the things we were just talking about. This is something that's particularly common today. We maybe live in the most um, narratological, I don't know if that's right, maybe the right way to say it, the most narratological moment in human history. I think we like to think of the old mythological past as the time when everyone lived according to these kind of general stories. But I don't know that even in my lifetime, I've I've been a part of a society that's more kind of ensconced in narrative and text than the society that we live in today. I think, I think a lot of it, is perhaps a reaction to the Enlightenment rationalist fixation on history. This idea that the only valuable or meaningful retelling of a story is a densely chronological one. That you have to make sure that it it goes in accordance with a particular kind of timestamp or something like that. And I I think there's a reaction towards it because now we understand that that's not how we frame things necessarily. Um, And even though the Enlightenment won that kind of historicization, this chronological retelling of stories within history as the only thing towards reality or factuality is that we're realizing now that actually that's not even how our, our brains work. We, we we represent stories in such a way where meaningfulness of it perhaps could be prioritized instead of chrono- chronology. We think about it in terms of um, its impact upon our lives, even even the way in which we, we, we rethink about 
our paths. Yeah. We don't necessarily tell things in a chronological fashion. Yeah. We tend to communicate things in such a way where, okay, these are the most significant events in my life. Maybe it's actually my conversion, or maybe it's before that something that happened, or maybe it's after that, maybe it's my wedding or something like that. We actually recognize just in common everyday phenomenology that the way we narrate is not by just chronology. It's by meaningfulness, it's by impact, it's by its effects on us and things like that. And it's not a less meaningful way and it's not a less factual way to get mm -hmm. at reality. It could actually be a very, it could be a more reliable way than the chronological retelling. Yeah. It's interesting to me how, you know, we can take any event in our lives uh, and we frame it in a narrative. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I can tell you, you know, we could talk to a friend of ours of what happened last week and, and they'll tell it to us as if it's like a story. There's a conflict that's been resolved. You are the protagonist. There is an antagonist that had to be overcome. Uh, and it reads like a narrative, but it's, you know, it's just regular everyday life. But the way we retell it is always in that story uh, type of form. It's like we are built in such a way to be narrative, uh, to, to think narrative, to think of a flow uh, with the resolution. Uh, I always find that ironic when, you when we think through uh, biblical scholarship and how that exact argument that the Bible sounds like a narrative is used to, uh, to deny its historicity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it, the more narrative it is, it can't be historical because life doesn't work that way. But right. in fact, the way that we tell our lives is in the complete opposite, and it's all based on historical reality, on what really happened, but it's in the shape um, uh, of a narrative. And so uh, so I do find that really intriguing. And, and it's not just the biblical uh, stories. You know, again, our, our lives are that way. Yeah, yeah. and I think one of the ma main mistakes that that leads to is a sort of sense of the Bible is a hindrance to what really happened behind the text. That you're going to use, let's say, the four Gospels, to reconstruct a chronological retelling. And that's what's mm -hmm. really important. That's the meat of the story, right? Whereas actually maybe that's missing the point. What if there is no access behind the text except from the text themselves and the way in which God has ordered these four gospels is to show you many angles towards this one story. And he wants you to think of it in terms of this narratival structure, in terms of the different theological purposes of why the stories are told in this sort of fashion. And I think... Um, we need to accept that that's actually a more meaningful way of looking at it rather than trying to see behind the text, if that makes sense. Yeah, there's, uh, it's partly a function then of finitude, right? Our, as humans, even if I'm standing there at the event, I can only take in so much material. You know, this is, you know, you, you brought up the, the modernist problem in a way, you know, this, this is kind of what, you, what Kant refers to as the sensuous manifold, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's all this information hitting me. How do I then perceive it? How do I categorize it and give order to it? This is something all humans have to do all the time. We learn how to do it. That's part of what it means to grow up as a human, right? As you learn how to be selective mm -hmm. and to listen selectively. I mean, I, uh, I have a family member who's, who's hearing is starting to go out in his older age. And one of the things he's lost is selectivity. Mm -hmm. And he talks about how hard it is 
to hear in a group, particularly if there's background noise, because it's just all the noise is hitting you at once, you know, and, and, and that's, that's really debilitating. That's one of the things we learn as humans is how to select out information. And then a good author, a good narrator, a good reteller of things takes that necessity, right? That we can only take in so much information at a given time and starts crafting that artistically. That's what art is. That's what artfulness is, is being able to select out and organize and convey the information in a way that doesn't just rightly convey the events, but actually maybe draws you. This is what we think. We, we all have that feeling when you're watching a movie and all of a sudden you realize, oh, this is bigger than I thought it was. This is about a bigger theme than I thought. Um, and, you know, you have that feeling of whatever it is, you know, sublimity or, or mm-hmm. wonder. And that's what artfulness is, is being able to convey that right. And I think that's what you're getting at too, right? With this, with, with even with the gospels or with the synoptic texts of the Old Testament, like Kings and, and, and Chronicles, you're getting these uh, you know, bifocal visions of these events that kind of give you two different approaches and ways of thinking through them. And it draws us to a richer, deeper theology. Right. And I think one of the, one of the main mistakes that could be drawn from this is to say that therefore all narrative, all storytelling, all meaningful retelling of history is a subjective vision that has nothing to do with the objectivity of the facts, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think I do think if you take God out of the picture, that could be a conclusion that you that you contend toward. You know, one of the things that that Kant had done is to say that everything that is personal, everything that is narratival, everything that has to do with morals and meaning, is a is is a projection of the self. Mm-hmm. into this uh, incalcitrant, meaningless phenomena in front of you, right? And so, you know, you hear this all the time of, you know, okay, wh- what is the, f- the objectivity of the fact on the one hand? And what is the personal interpretation of it on the other? And really, there is no meaningful connection between the two of them. It's just mm-hmm. the way, it's just what your truth is. And you're trying to project that into the facts themselves. That, that, that I think is a mistake because it... it it presupposes that the facts themselves have no personality to it. It presupposes that the facts themselves is meaningless and yeah. that you're just projecting kind of brute, something into brute it. history, brute fact, yeah. brute history. Right. Um, but if you start to put God into the picture, you realize that actually personality goes all the way down mm-hmm. and, that, <laughs> and that God himself turtles go all the way down. Right. Well, yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and God himself has given a interpretation of Mm -hmm. history and he himself has given us that interpretation within the scriptures right and so when i think about you know van till and and his why it is that he is very profound to me is that he's he's trying to say this is cornelius van till that anytime you give any retelling of history you're really trying to think god's thoughts after him because you're not reading brute facts Mm -hmm. you're not just looking at meaningless facts and you're trying to impose rationality into the facts but you're actually trying to see and selectively recount what is um, important. And what is important has actually been chosen by, by God himself. God himself has narrated the story. And we could either reconstruct the story mm-hmm. and try to say what's important is going to me and what's according to God. Or you can actually try to think God's thoughts after him and say, no, God has given a meaning to these events. And these events have been ordained by the counsel of God. And so you're actually just ectypally reading yeah. in what is the archetypical thoughts of God. That well, and that's a way of thinking about inspiration. To your point, you said, well, people say, well, it's a narrative, so that's not telling us what really happened, you know, really in quotes. Um, 
But actually, what what we're arguing with inspiration is that yes, this is a human perspective. It's a it's a properly human perspective on events. We should expect it to make sense. When I see what Mark is doing in his gospel, I shouldn't be surprised that it's very human. Makes sense. Maybe even looks like other types of uh, that genre, you know, of gospel writing or something like that. And yet, in it because it's inspired, because it's breathed out by God through this human author. It is a reliable accounting of events. It will not lead you astray, but it will lead you to the right conclusion, not the wrong conclusion. Because right properly, you could have the conclusion of an unbelieving Roman bystander or Pharisee, and that would lead you to the wrong conclusion about Jesus. Mark's leads you to the right and proper and correct conclusion. And we can evaluate that, you know, contra the, the, the postmodernist who says all narratives are the same, therefore just go play with narrative. We can evaluate the truth claim because of, of the of the narrative because there is a God who, like you said, Gray, has personality and speaks into the world. I'd actually argue, I mean, we've talked about this before. I think we talked about this with Chris Watkin a while back. The reason why any human can know anything is true is because God has spoken into the world. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a claim we need to lay hold of as Christians and recognize even if it's not acknowledged, outside of the world, we have to acknowledge that it is the truth because God has revealed himself. True things can be said. Mm-hmm. What I think I appreciate is how, you know, the truthfulness um, of the inspired word doesn't have to look exactly the same, but yet they're both true. Uh, I, I think of like, for example, David, the uh, biblical David and his portrayal in uh, Samuel and Kings, well, mm-hmm. second Samuel, compared to um his portrait in um in chronicles Mm -hmm. is so both historically true but day and night you know opposite just because the human author and the divine author has different intents behind um uh behind the picture there you you know in you know if if all you had is second samuel to understand david you would never conclude that he was the ideal picture, the golden standard of all godly kings. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what you are told, at least 10 to 12 chapters of material, is he's, uh, he is a you know, violent uh, against Bathsheba. You know, one of the uh, contributions of the Me Too movement here has been that the sin with Bathsheba was not consensual. Mm-hmm. Most likely that was a one-sided David wanted her, David took her. He violated her, and it's probably true. He tried to cover that up by murdering her husband um, and felt no guilt at all as a result of this. That led to the rebellion of Absalom, the the coup d'etat. You know, 12 chapters of biblical stuff dedicated to David on this, all true, all historically accurate, and you're just kind of left with this image of a, of a corrupt, you know, David. Mm-hmm. When you read um, Chronicles, and you could actually see how it was edited out, none of that material is there. In fact, you could actually see David as sort of this ideal picture mm-hmm. of, of of godliness, and you could so you could see how the narrative is crafted in two different ways, yeah. both true and both uh, serving a divine purpose uh, to communicate a different intent, depending on what exactly. Uh, the human author. And so if you put the two together, you kind of have now the real, the historical David in a manner of speaking, but you don't do it that way because the intent of the text is different. You know, Kings is trying, Samuel is trying to say something different 
than what Chronicles and, is trying to and say. And the audience, the context is different too, right? It seems as if right. Kings is saying, even our best kings had deep, great failures. Why, and that's why, why we're, we're in exile. exile. Right. And then Chronicles is saying, yeah, we all know we had deep, dark failures. Do we have any hope in the restoration? Yeah, it's the well, ideal look, David. Yeah. yeah. And then you start getting all of Israel coming together. These kings were acting you know, wonderfully. In other words, giving them hope for what restoration yeah, you, might you look like. You actually can see a similar type thing in our modern uh, narrative telling. We were just talking about the Obi-Wan Kenobi show. Yeah, I was hoping you'd take it there. And, um, you know, and, and they do this thing with Darth Vader who, you know, is just like a, for true Star Wars fans, he is like the, the, you know, the anti-hero, you know, the mm -hmm. climactic, uh, the interest of the Star Wars shows is really into him. And, and in the, uh, in the original trilogy, you know, he's corrupt, you know, he's evil, but you never really see it. You kind of see it. Yeah. Uh, and he's just sort of, he's got a bad as, temper. Yeah. He's got yeah. a bad temper. He, he chokes a couple folk, but you know, he, he's not really, you know, corrupt, corrupt. You know, you don't think him, think him evil, um, and then he's redeemed at the end, and that's sort of the arc that he has yeah. is sort of the 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 fallen hero that that is redeemed at the end. Mm -hmm. But now in the Obi Wan show, you see the background that fills in the blank, and now you could actually see that he he really is wicked. He he really yeah. is evil. There is no redemption. He is vengeful. He is out to cause harm yeah. and now you can see you know that kind of the the background develop even further uh and and but it's serving the point in the narrative in a way that didn't quite fit within the original trilogy and i i, I mean i think it's great i love what they're doing with them uh, and how they're trying to give that type of background history so that you get a fuller sense of the and what you're saying there the way you even said that i love what they're doing with him right you're commenting now on the writers and the showrunners Mm -hmm. who are doing something and and that's the key that's that's the somewhat that that's the sophistication of our age that i think actually helps us in the in the reading of scripture as well stepping back and saying not just oh here's a bunch of stories about jesus but what is mark doing with these stories and sayings about jesus what is john doing what's matthew doing what's the chronicler doing versus the author of kings the historian behind kings you know that kind of thing is sitting back and recognizing that there's multiple worlds, as one of my professors, Richard Pratt, put it. He used to say, there's that world, that's the story. Okay, there's the events. There's their world, that's the author. And then he adds the last part, that there's our world. In other words, how do, how do, how do we read these events, mm -hmm. right? right? And if you have any questions about that, you know, go back and look at how, you know, uh, you know how we deal with certain texts like, servanthood servanthood slash slavery in the in the bible there are stories that revolve around that as a theme and then we have to ask ourselves what is the author doing with those themes and then now we reflect on them now in light of our context in you know a post-western uh, north american slave trade world okay how do we reflect then on those events okay you can't all of these worlds are at play in our interpretation and one of the things i actually think even in our society today one of the things we need to be more aware of is the our world part of it. In other words, how is the context in which we're living as the reader influencing our interpretation and our understanding of the events being described and the manner in which they're being described? Yeah, and I think it's really interesting when you think about the different angles of a particular story because on the one hand, now apparently this Obi-Wan show, I haven't seen it. Um, the fact that I have zero interest in Star Wars reminds me that I'm still an immigrant here. 
But um, <laughs> all that to say is um, there's, there's different angles to it, right? On the one hand, it's showing you that this person is really becoming evil. But then there's lots of other interests, too, in, in today's uh, world, right? Where you're trying to recapture a sense of why the villain became the way that they are. That there, maybe there's something that happened to them, some kind of trauma, something that happened in their past, their yeah. childhood or whatever, to make you understand psychologically why the villain has become the way that he or she had, had become, right? So one of the most interesting shows um, in recent years is the show Mindhunter, uh, where they're trying to understand why serial killers um, act the way they do, yeah. what's motivating them. And one of the things that they pointed out in the See, show is the how, early part of the FBI's right. criminal, you know, serial murder investigation team, right? Yeah. It's kind of how it developed out of something that saw this as separate from regular crime. Right. That made serial killing a sort of category unto itself. Yeah. And one of the things they're trying to do is understand these killers by interviewing them, by studying them psychologically. And a lot of the pushback in that show was, why are you humanizing these killers? Yeah. Like, why are you trying to understand them? This is just pure evil. But maybe they're not polar opposites. Maybe understanding them is not necessarily excusing them, right? And it's really trying to show you that that actually, if you take a look at it in a particular kind of angle, you can understand it rather than... So, so the more narratival angles to the thing actually gets you to the reality rather than less. Mm-hmm. It comes back to the basic point. And maybe, you know, maybe it helps us understand this reformed doctrine of a total depravity mm-hmm. when we realize that pure evil and something that's understandable are not polar opposites, yeah. right? Pure yeah. evil can be understandable. Right. Um, and that gets at how every part of our, you know, oftentimes, to put it in another way, oftentimes the most evil thing shows up in a very mundane way. Right. That's quite understandable. Which is also why the the counsel of God, the decree of God, the predestined plan of God is a precondition for the meaningfulness of every fact. Because if you take away the counsel of God, then you have this uninterpreted, yeah. just brute fact that has no meaning to it whatsoever unless you give it meaning, but then it's entirely subjective. Mm-hmm. Right. It has to be a God interpreted fact beforehand for it to actually be something that you can read. I always find that ironic how a non-believer who's going through a crisis will speak about a purpose behind the pain when they have no rational basis yeah. to say that. Mm-hmm. They presume a Christian worldview yeah. by saying there's a purpose. Now, we as Christians can say that, you know, to your point. Uh, but a person who has no concept of God and his divine decree could never make that claim, but yet they do mm-hmm. because they just desperately need to sense that there is me. The the conclusion of meaninglessness is so dark and and devoid of all hope. Yes. You know, you just don't want to go there. So you just want to believe that there's something that's driving this. I mean, you know, we say that somewhat as a cliche as Christians, you know, that there, there's a reason, there's a purpose behind the pain, meaning behind the madness. Mm-hmm. But in many ways, it's a very comforting fact. Yeah. And, and all, um, all humans, as you say, all humans have this notion of authorship and meaning right, in the world right. around them, often unexamined. What, where does that come from? This fact that everyone has this notion of meaning and authorship. And yet, it, it you know, we, we have a we have an app for that, as I want to say, you know, we, we have a, we have a powerful explanation for why right. that's the case. And that's because the world is authored. Right, the, the world, as you say, in the, in the divine council and, and, and the eternal deny, decree. Right, yeah. yet they deny that. I mean, it's what you know, Cornel, you know, Van Til mentioned that they are borrowing our yeah. Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. They uh, they presume a Christian reality of life, but yet deny the uh, the, the mm-hmm. God behind it. Yeah.
they're inconsistently you know thinking so whether you're interpreting the gospel of mark or the obi-wan kenobi series that's out right now you're doing something that is deeply human and also something that's deeply a part of our age i think i think i i, I don't i have less of a difficulty now getting sp- students to recognize the voice of an author right i think i even did when i started teaching um yeah. because that's something we're all very aware of and yet also have to remember too as kind of a, a you know a, a, a warning or, or a hedge on one side there's a ditch on the other side is where you start to think of the world only according to one specific frame of events around you and you lose the complexity of the world around us because while while there is a story while there is meaning we also have to remember there is um, this vast variety of experience. And I think one of our jobs as humans and as Christians is to be able to listen to another experience, to listen to another narrative and to recognize that this narrative might be you know, about a series of events. I'm not talking about sort of met, 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 right. you know, met, meta narratives or something like that, but it's about a series of events to listen to someone's story and recognize I might have not understood what mm-hmm. was really going on or what was going on in, you know, a significant way because I was blind. I, I was enforcing my narrative on, on, on a narrative that was much more complicated. And yeah. I think this is something that Christians actually, we, we, we're, we're asked to do. It's, it's something that, that's, that, uh, you know, that I think the scripture makes claims on us in giving us mul- multiple perspectives and saying all of these are reliable interpretations of the events. Um, as Christians, we ourselves need to have a certain epistemological humility, recognizing we don't have God's perspective on everything yep. and we have to be able to listen to others. Yeah. And it's not to say that there's no objective take, but, but recognize that the more you push on the objectivism of things, it's the more you could actually tend towards an impersonal take on things, right? So we want an objective biography, but the more you push on objectivity, you have to ask the questions of um, what does it mean to be objective? What does it mean to actually recount someone's biographic detail in a personal and significant way? So you can imagine opening up a biography of Dr. Scott Red's life here, and then the first mm. hundred pages could be about how many... You think it would be that long? Well, yeah, okay. see where I'm going here. Okay. The first hundred pages would be on how many grains of sand was on the beach of California when Dr. Scott Red was born, let's say in Virginia, uh-huh. right? Yeah. And that would be technically speaking objective yeah. because it's telling you the fact of the matter, but it's not getting at the heart of the matter, the personal significance of the matter, right? You understand that when you're a biographer, when you're retelling a history, the more personal, the more significant is is actually you have to not necessarily impose but you have to tell a story that has to do with the person's life and it could still be objective while recognizing that the objectivity of it has to be bound up in the personal rather than pushing objectivism in such a way where you lose sight of what's really important yeah and again that's not because of deception no or sin that's because of finitude like even this conversation over the last 30 minutes, we could talk about how the molecules are bouncing in the air and the wall, you know, as our right. vocal cords are vibrating air and all that kind of stuff, you know, but that's actually not for the purposes of this podcast. What's the most interesting thing right? the past 30 minutes. Yeah. And it, the more you focus on that, the more you end up as a materialist. And I think the best materialist philosophers would admit that if you end up with naturalist materialism, 
then all sense of identity, all sense of narrative, all sense of story, all sense of morality is really a fiction. What you mean by natural? Uh, that everything that exists is physical. Yeah. That everything, if you really take a look at everything objectively, then you really end up with just molecules bouncing around. There's really nothing. Chemicals firing off in your exactly. brain. Endorphins being released from glands. We're all purely no. animalistic creatures, right? And and so anything that strikes you as narratological or meaningful is an imposition of a evolutionary error in our hardwiring, right? Mm -hmm. And and so the best physicalist materialist philosophers would actually say hey consciousness is a myth um free will is a myth right narrative is a myth everything that that we feel is significant is actually purely a subjective by thing. best you mean the most consistent the most consistent yeah, yeah. yeah it sounds so positivistic that type of mentality just absolutely just in, so. that's what you end up with and i think um we have to recognize that because the the more we push god away from the picture it's not just God that you have to get rid of. It's everything else. No. I actually saw a, a conversation, one of those kind of social media conversations between an apologist. And this this gentleman he was talking to was what you would say is a consistent, you know, natural materialist. And his answer to everything, you know, the apologist was saying, well, uh, don't you believe there's meaning? He goes, yeah, of course I do. He's like, don't you believe this conversation has meaning? He says, yes, of course I do. Why? It's like, I can't help it. I can't yeah. help it. It's just, just the way things are. I just can't help it. Like everything was just, it's just, what it is, you know, um, which ultimately is also saying that there is no meaning in it. It's yeah. just, it's just chemicals firing off and mixing. And, and there's a term for it. They call it error theory where like you just can't help but be an error about reality, namely yeah. the idea that you have consciousness, free will, and that there's morality out there. Mm -hmm. um, this is just a, a faulty byproduct of our evolutionary history. Mm -hmm. It's very depressing. It's not a feature. It's it a glitch. Depressing. No. It's so, so don't be optimistic if you're a non-theist. Be, be no. consistent. <laughs> yeah, be consistent. It's like house. depressed. It's like house. But you have, have to unpack house? that. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 the show house, the which show was your favorite show before you started watching Obi-Wan Obi Kenobi. Kenobi. Yeah, no, I, uh, house, for those who might remember, uh, I forget when it was on, uh, when it aired, but was about a medical doctor yeah. who, um, I guess it was a fictitious, um, uh, branch of medicine, uh, diagnostic uh, medicine, which I guess doesn't really exist. But basically, he is a um, incredibly gifted doctor who um, uh, who is able to solve the most obscure and the most difficult of medical issues. And so, you know, whenever there is a crisis with someone who's having some type of a, a physical uh, issue of some sort, and no one can solve it, yeah. they all go to house, and then house will look at it. And somehow work through some issues, and eventually, we'll have some type of a medical epiphany and solve the thing. He's supposed to be brilliant, you know. Just but he's an atheist, um, and he's miserable. <laughs> you know, he's he's constantly looking for some sense of uh, happiness in life, but he can never find it because um, he he's an atheist. And, and it's sort of what you were just saying, uh, Gray. Uh, I, what I like about the show is that it's such a consistent atheistic worldview. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this is your, your best and most brilliant of atheist. This is what it result, results down to a life of misery, right? You can, you can be at the top of your game and you're, yeah. you just don't see any purpose in life. And the irony is the call to consistency and the term misery itself is a value judgment. Mm -hmm. uh, consistency is a logical normative judgment. 
misery is a value axiological moral judgment and both of them presuppose particular standards unobservable unprovable right rational norms or moral norms and again you have to get rid of both of these ideas if you're a materialist yeah i think he does that sort of at the end i mean he just sort of it's all absurd yeah well he just sort of you know this is it well the ultimate and it's what people call the ultimate irrationality of the modern mode you know, is that it's ultimately irrational. It ultimately leads you to irrationality and meaninglessness. Yeah, which is why I think people talk about, you know, all narrative now as purely just subjective tropes with, with no basis in reality. That mm-hmm. talk of capital R reality is itself a violent uh, way of talking. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's just all about your truth and my truth. But it's all incoherent because the moment you say that is, you know, the idea of meaninglessness itself capturing mm-hmm. reality i mean it's, it's all becomes just psychobabble well, and i think that's why with the postmoderns we have to recognize that there is subjectivity to our observations there's so there there, there there are frames there are narratives that we understand the world through and that's okay where we break right where i break right. with derrida is that there is a god outside of the system right who is infinite eternal and unchangeable and is being wisdom power holiness justice goodness and truth and he speaks into the world and creates thereby a standard by which we can apply our perceptions and our our, our narratives about the world and we can we can evaluate them according to his perspective and it doesn't mean though that we just have a rationalist god's eye view of things because given the reform framework of the creator creature distinction we're all still ectypal knowers. We're all still mm-hmm. just knowing analogically to God, yeah. right? Which means that we there's a third way. There's a third way of both rationalism and irrationalism. There's this way of saying we have a finite perspective on the world, and yet we can have a true perspective on the world because we're thinking God's thoughts after him, mm-hmm. right? The rationalist says, I have the God's eye view perspective. I know exactly what God's thoughts are. And if you don't listen to me, that means you're going against God. The irrationalist view says, I don't I have no idea what reality is. It's all just completely subjective. But right. the, the Christian reformed view says, right, um, I know the truth. And yet my understanding of the truth is just a finite mm-hmm. sort of grasp on it. And I don't know everything. Yeah. And I can't know everything unless I have my community and I can have the scriptures and I can have history to tell me and inform me. But I, I can therefore have this conviction that I know something about the truth and yet have that kind of epistemic That's humility. Great, yeah. That is that key, great. Yeah, that ectypal, is great. Yeah, ectypal distinction is important one. And the other one being, because some people would say, you know, Socrates might say, well, that's kind of arbitrary. You're just following whatever the God says and say, actually, it's the least arbitrary thing in the world. Right. It is the most not arbitrary. It's the most meaningful perspective because it's the ground of being. Right. Yeah. You know, it's great. It's very assuring, uh, but yet very humbling. Socrates is only right if polytheism is true, mm-hmm. right? But but the God that we worship is not yeah. just one God among the many. He has a say. But if there are yeah. any other gods, then they too would be dependent on this God. Yeah, that's right. Amen. Amen. So keep interpreting out there, dear listener. Um, and, and when you recognize doing- and interpret with confidence. And when and you're I- doing so, you're imaging God because you are an image bearer. That's right. Amen. Well said. All right. Well, let's let's close with that. And great having this conversation. It was very fruitful for me. And um, I look forward to continuing it next time. Take care.
Uh, <laughs> um, no. Um, what is it? meaning? God and meaning? I don't know. 